Hey, it's Cameron, host of FP's weekly economics podcast, Ones and Twos. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. So Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is in Washington this week. Modi's been here before, but it's his first state visit. The India-U.S. relationship is obviously important. Successive U.S. presidents have described how they think the partnership could be a defining one for the 21st century. But sometimes the rhetoric can also go a bit far. You'll hear politicians and TV anchors trotting out familiar platitudes this week about how India and the United States are the world's two biggest democracies and uniquely share values and interests in an otherwise turbulent and rocky world order. Some of that rhetoric feels a little bit dated today. It feels like it's run its way into a heavy dose of realism. After all, Democracy has faced challenges in both the United States and India. These two countries are by no means immune to the problems other countries face. Nor is their shared value system that strong. New Delhi has pointedly diverged from Washington's foreign policy objectives by not only refusing to sanction Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, but also increasing its imports of Russian crude in the last year by orders of magnitude. As the United States has sought to build a coalition to punish Russia, isolate China, and more broadly align democracies against autocracies, India hasn't quite followed the script. Instead, it's expressed a more individualistic approach, picking and choosing the best deals and partnerships for itself. As well it should, Indians would say. Ashley Tellis, a former U.S. policymaker and longtime watcher of U.S.-India relations, made a splash recently with a foreign affairs article titled America's Bad Bet on India. He's since told me the headline itself was melodramatic and overstated his argument. But his larger point was that Washington may be hoping for too much of its friendship with New Delhi, that if it expects India to get involved in a potential future conflict with China, it will end up being disappointed. In other words, India will do India. So is Washington expecting too much of New Delhi? Is India somehow taking advantage of a moment when the United States is preoccupied with competition with China? Listen on to find out. Telus is the Tata Chair for Strategic Affairs and a Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As always, FP subscribers send us loads of questions for these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video on foreignpolicy.com slash live. Let's dive in. Ashley, welcome. Thank you so much, Ravi. It's a pleasure to be here. Really great to have you on. So we're having this discussion just before India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi visits the White House. He will also be addressing a joint session of Congress. It's safe to say that 
the U.S.-India relationship is front of mind. So you make the case that Washington has had to overlook Delhi's democratic erosion. It's had to turn a blind eye to the fact that India has not only refused to sanction Russia over its invasion of Ukraine, but has also dramatically ramped up oil purchases from there. And you say that all of these things are not worth it in the end, because New Delhi would never help Washington in a crisis with Beijing. Expand on that. Well, first, let me correct the perception uh, that I think India is a bad bet for the United States. India is a country with independent interests. Uh, Its interests converge with the United States, uh, where China is concerned, but they're not always congruent uh, with those of the United States. India's ambition is to be able to balance China independently and not serve as an appendage uh, to U.S. interests. And as long as that fundamental insight is appreciated in Washington, I think we will be in a good place. Uh, Unfortunately, that's not always appreciated because as the U.S.-China competition heats up and as Sino-Indian competition heats up, uh, it creates conditions for expectations that I think the bilateral relationship between Washington and New Delhi will not be able to bear. And so the piece is really an attempt to argue that corrective. And I think that needs to be understood. So I thought there was a key bit where you said that it does not harbor any innate allegiance toward preserving the liberal international order. And it retains an enduring aversion toward participating in mutual defense. You also go on to say that it seeks to acquire advanced technologies from the U.S. to bolster its own economic and military capabilities and thus facilitate its rise as a great power capable of balancing China independently. But it does not presume that American assistance imposes any further obligations on itself. That last bit. You've been involved in negotiations with India. You also say that the two countries' security relationship only flourished after Bush offered India a transformative civil nuclear agreement, and that's the one that you helped negotiate. Was there ever an assumption or something explicit that U.S. assistance would go hand in hand with obligations? No, no, never. And I think that was partly a function of circumstance. When we negotiated the nuclear deal in the early 2000s, U.S.-China relations were certainly not bad. We had disagreements on various issues, but there was no fundamental confrontation. Our calculation at that time was to build a new relationship with India in the hope of shaping the Asian environment uh, in ways that would prevent China from misusing its power. And so our expectation at that point was simply build up India's power because that's good in itself. And it's good in terms of creating an environment where China would find it useful to have productive relations with all the states on its periphery. But there was never any expectation that India would be doing things for us simply because we made big investments in India, including dramatic investments like offering it a nuclear deal. Uh, 
I think the expectation that India would actually begin to do things for us and with us uh, really grew only after US-China relations began to sour. And I think that can be dated to the onset of the Trump administration. And explain a little bit then, so 2016 onwards, the United States begins to get tough on China. There's bipartisan agreement uh, that that relationship is, you know, animating uh, the global order more than anything else. Tell us a little bit then about how the U.S.-India relationship, this relationship that, as I said, for the last 20 years was seen as one that could be a defining partnership for the 21st century. How does that begin to change? Well, it begins to change because circumstances, you know, change in very dramatic ways. Uh, until uh, the advent of the Trump administration, uh, Sino-Indian relations were actually in a, in a workmanly sort of place. The two countries were never the best of friends, uh, but they had a modicum of working relations. That, of course, begins to fray uh, dangerously after May 2020, when China begins to engage in uh, pressure on the Sino-Indian border. At just about that time, maybe a couple of years earlier, uh, US-China relations also begin to, to melt down. And so you get an intersection of two uh, relationships, the Sino-Indian relationship and the US-China relationship, that are both uh, becoming frayed at roughly the same time. And the Trump administration responds as, as one could sort of you know, understand and appreciate by trying to create a new set of partnerships that would tighten the noose uh, on China and sort of balance, contain its misbehavior. And the instrument that the Trump administration made central to its policy was the Quad. And the Quad was imagined uh, by the Trump administration as essentially becoming the nucleus of a security community, a security community which would tie together a range of Asian partners uh, engaging in various forms of pushback against China. And India joins the Quad at a time when it begins to feel Chinese pressure but very and this includes Australia and Japan, of course. And that includes Australia and Japan. Uh, but very interestingly, India does not buy into the Trump administration's definition of the Quad as a security community. India looks at the Quad as essentially a diplomatic instrument uh, for socializing uh, the Asian political system about the threat posed by China. It looks at the Quad as a coordinating mechanism so that all the countries involved can begin to sort of exchange notes about the challenge posed by China. But India bends backwards to avoid giving the Quad any kind of military complexion. Uh, and this goes back to the point that you were making, Ravi, that since India's independence, India has had a very skittish uh, approach to any forms of collective defense. And it did not want to signal to Beijing, even though Sino-Indian relations were melting down, that India was going to be joining some sort of a US-led alliance uh, to push back against China. And that position holds to this day, where even though India has deeply engaged itself in the Quad, 
uh, in a variety of quad-related activities in the last few years. It has gone out of its way to signal uh, to the entire Asian community, including its Quad partners, that it does not see the Quad as a military alliance. It doesn't want to make the Quad a military alliance, and it will have nothing to do uh, with the Quad to the degree that uh, there are military activities that are planned in a collective sort of way. And I think this has been an abiding feature of India's uh, you know, approach uh, to international politics since 1947. And so the Indian response to the Quad since 2020 is not something that surprised me at all. You know, it seemed to me that one of the underlying sort of laments in your piece is that the U.S. has done all these things for India. Um, it has provided assistance in, in a range of domains. And yet, you know, in as much as people expect India to uh, align in a certain way as a another democracy as, you know, being a democratic alternative in Asia to China, that despite this framework that we often use in the United States and in the West more, more broadly, India has puzzled, I think, those people who share that kind of assumption. It has puzzled those people by not uh, sanctioning Russia, for example, or not even saying anything strong against Russia after its invasion of Ukraine. And then it goes and doubles down on oil purchases, dramatically increasing how much crude it's getting from Russia, um, in a sense being the reason behind the, the necessity for an oil cap that was negotiated by the West. Given all of this, um, is it fair to say then that you know, the United States wanted more uh, from its relationship from India? I think uh, certainly official Washington would want India to be far more forward-leaning uh, on many of the issues that you lay out. But the fact remains that India is going to pursue its own interests. And to the degree that we have a successful partnership with India, it will have to be anchored in the recognition that India's pursuit of its own interests often uh, will be at odds with ours. And we have to learn to live with that fact. If we attempt to persuade India to change its approach uh, to Asian uh, balancing or to international politics more broadly, uh, then this relationship will falter. And so part of the underlying argument that I wanted to make in the piece was to restore the old appreciation that India will go its own way. And that is simply a reality that we will have to live with. And it doesn't necessarily always have to undercut our interests, but in many cases it will. And so a partnership with India will be unlike a partnership of the kind that we enjoy with many other countries, especially our allies. Now, I wanted to make a larger point, and I think I, I do make that uh, quite emphatically, which is the American experience of, you know, working with Confederates is always through the lens of alliances. And India will not, uh, it, the relationship with India will not work out if we use that lens. India will not be an ally. India will not, uh, you know, toe our preferred line. 
uh, India will not be part of the collaborative effort uh, that we attempt uh, to, that we are trying to assemble, especially vis-a-vis -vis China. On some matters, it will. On some matters, it will work with us. On others, it won't. And the point I make there is that even on China, although we have converging interests, we don't have congruent interests because India is too close to China. It is weaker than China. And therefore, there are limits to the degree that which uh, we can expect India to push back on China. So let's just stay with China for a second. What do you think the realistic expectations of India might be uh, in case of, say, a conflict over Taiwan? Um, what do you think Washington might expect? Is it diplomatic support? Is it logistic support through bases um, or an Indian military deployment? Which of these areas do you think America might consider uh, India as being able to offer some support? And where do you think Delhi might dither on? I think, you know, the answer to that question really varies uh, depending on the individual uh, that you talk to, both in Washington and in New Delhi. But as a general principle, I think India will be careful about not becoming part of any coalition military activity against China for the reasons that I just mentioned. Obviously, it wants uh, the United States and its coalition to prevail if there is a confrontation with China. There are no, two, there are no doubts about that. Uh, India sees an American-dominated order to be far more important and valuable for its interests than a Chinese-dominated order. But I think unless it were pushed uh, to become part of this coalition, and when I say pushed, I mean the Chinese doing something crazy on the border with India, threatening India physically. I think India would be comfortable in diplomatic pushback against whatever China is doing. I think it would offer some forms of tacit support uh, but it's very hard uh, to detail what those forms of tacit support will be, especially in the military realm. Uh, you know, people have speculated about whether India might offer its, uh, say, port facilities uh, for, Mer for American vessels that are transiting through, uh, whether India would offer overflight uh, for American, uh, you know, warplanes uh, that are transiting the theater. Uh, whether might whether India might be more active in the Indian Ocean, uh, west of the Strait of Malacca, with respect to offering combat support. Uh, all this, you know, is these are interesting questions. But at the moment, I think this is all in the realm of speculation. What we can say with some confidence is that India will not be rushing uh, to be a participant in coalition military activity unless it were compelled to do so uh, because of its own interests. And the way I think of those interests are in terms of you know, palpable threats that India may face from China on the border. I think that is the one element that might push India into uh, more, serious, uh, more serious forms of participation with us militarily. Uh, but there is nothing in India's historical record that suggests that that would be New Delhi's first preference. You know, much of what you're trying to do, Ashley, it seems to me, is push back against 
potentially unreasonable expectations of India in the U.S. Um, and I guess my question there is, you know, is it your sense that there are unreasonable expectations of India? Because critics of your point of view will say that, in fact, the U.S. has a very clear-eyed understanding uh, of what New Delhi's needs are, um, that it doesn't really expect Delhi to join a military coalition against Beijing, um, that it's been quite willing to allow uh, India to pick and choose how it defines the Quad internally and how it engages with it, that it's been very willing to allow India to make an economic argument about crude purchases from Russia. Um, so it's facilitated a lot of India's foreign policy choices in a way that allows the two to be friends. So I guess you, you must be picking up on some resentment within the American foreign policy establishment. I think there are many voices in uh, the U.S. national security establishment that have expectations that India will be a partner. The specifics of that partnership, I think, as I said, vary from person to person, institution from institution. But I think there are expectations that India will do more than simply cheer from the sidelines. There's a second point that I think uh, needs to be appreciated. It's all fine and good to say in peacetime that we are comfortable with India's choices. If we actually got into a conflict with China, which would be among the most hair-raising possibilities, the more hair-raising threats that the United States would face, it's not obvious to me that we will be comfortable with an India that sits on the sidelines. Uh, and the reason why I mentioned in the piece the Taiwan contingency is only because I think it is the hardest contingency that the United States faces. And if that contingency comes to pass, obviously we hope we can avert it, but if that contingency comes to pass, I think the pressures on the US leadership at that point will be such that we will be looking for all the friends we can find. And so, you know, when people say, oh, we have a very clear-eyed idea that India, you know, will not do much and we're all comfortable with it. I think that is true uh, for many, uh, you know, civilian leaders in the United States in peacetime. But if we actually got into a war, the pressures of the, that situation would be so great that I'm not sure uh, we will have the fortitude to stand there and just leave India alone. And the piece is really attempting to sort of, you know, move the scenario to that contingency and, and, and make the argument that even in that contingency, we have to be prepared for an India uh, that chooses not to be part of whatever we are going to be engaged in. And so it's that's that's the kind of reality that I was trying to, uh, you know, sort of underscore that the conditions are going to be, you know, so difficult at that point in time in the context of a Taiwan contingency uh, that a lot of the pre-war expectations of India's behavior will be under severe pressure. Mm -hmm. And we need to appreciate the fact that we might have to live with an India that chooses otherwise. And in that sense, the uh, you know the Ukraine analogy has has a sort of interesting bearing 
that if it wasn't, for example, Russia's uh, war in Ukraine, we could all live with the idea of you know, India's neutrality as a matter of principle. But it was when the Russians decided that they were going to do something as dastardly as you know, just invade another country, that expectations in the United States simply arose about what India's you know, preferred behavior should be. And I think that's a useful analogy that, you know, prior to a crisis, you have some expectations, but then crises force changes in those expectations. And that is something that we ought to anticipate and realize. You know, there's also a historical precedent for this. For example, during the Gulf War, you know, India was as non-aligned as it was has ever been. And yet during the Gulf War, we wanted uh, India to support the coalition campaign uh, by offering uh, facilities uh, for U.S. aircraft and U.S. ships to use Indian ports. Now, you know, the first Gulf War was a classic case where one could say that Saddam Hussein's aggression was as blatant as Russia's aggression, uh, you know, is now in the Ukraine. And at that moment, uh, shall we say, we did not uh, think too hard about India's neutrality, but uh, you know, felt the compulsion uh, to ask it to support us in whatever way it could. And I expect we will face similar pressures if we are faced in the if we are faced with the threat of a of a war in Taiwan. And you are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. And I guess underpinning this as well is how India's self-perception has changed over the last three or four decades. Um, moving from, you know, a sort of self-defined non-alignment to now, um, you know, a slightly more self-interested foreign policy where it gets to pick and choose, you know, what it wants to do on the global stage, uh, still not aligned, um, but a little bit more muscular in its foreign policy choices. How do you see that changing as India gets richer um, as its middle classes become more powerful, um, as India's leadership maybe becomes more nationalist, not less, how do you see India's foreign policy more broadly changing and developing? And how does that impact uh, America's interests? Well, I see Indian foreign policy already on a trajectory of much greater global activism whether India is promoting its own interests, whether it is trying to position itself as a leader of the global South, the trend lines are quite clear. That India is not uh, you know, willing to be a shrinking violet, sort of allowing uh, the world to shape its choices. It wants to go out there and shape its choices. And I see that as being part of the natural maturation of a country that is a rising power. What I'm a little more confident about is that I don't see that translating into a muscularity with respect to the use of force outside the Indian subcontinent. And I think that is partly uh, because 
the security challenges within the subcontinent are not likely to disappear, even as India rises in power. And already, even though India has a formidable military machine, the fact of the matter is that that military machine is essentially confined to simply operations within the South Asian space. In other words, despite India's rise in capabilities, it does not have that surplus of military power that it can use widely outside the Indian subcontinent. And I don't see that reality fundamentally changing for at least another decade. Now, what happens 20, 30 years from now, you know, we can only speculate. Uh, but I see uh, the change that you alluded to, Ravi, which is a greater Indian activism, a greater Indian determination to shape its environment. I see that already in play. And I think that will only be magnified in time. Let me make another point, which goes back to something that you said earlier. This activism, particularly under the Modi government, is not an activism that is driven towards strengthening a liberal order. Now, prior to Prime Minister Modi, India was very much part of the liberal camp globally. India was, was part of the political West, and it was seeking to become part of the strategic West. I think today, India is very much part of the strategic West because it sees partners, Western partners, as being critical for its own rise. But it is shying away increasingly from becoming part of the political West. It doesn't want to be seen as just another post-colonial state that has imbibed you know, a Western identity and is content with living that Western identity. Under Prime Minister Modi, there is a very clear effort to define India as a civilizational state that is unique, that may have some uh, Western inheritances, but will not be defined by those Western inheritances. And India is trying to create a carve-out for itself to be able to conduct itself in ways where it is not, it is not uh, pressed by others with respect to how it uh, you know, manages its democracy at home and its foreign affairs abroad. And so in that sense, India is like many other rising powers. Uh, you, know, you can see the affinities, for example, with China, with Turkey, where they recognize that there is a larger liberal order. They recognize that that larger liberal order you know, provides them benefits. But they don't want to be part of that liberal order simpliciter. Uh, they want to be able to create space within that liberal order uh, for the conduct of their, of their politics in any way that they see fit. And I see that as being increasingly one of the features of this new India, which the United States will, will have to manage. I'm not sure we have the answer to how, uh, but it's a reality that we will have to deal with. So with Prime Minister Narendra Modi meeting uh, U.S. President Joe Biden this week, um, are you suggesting that America should formulate a new India policy? Or is it more just a case of lowering its expectations right now? I think it's a question of having realistic expectations. We are going to have a good relationship with India in the broadest sense of the word because our two societies are going to be increasingly intertwined. We are going to have some common interests, particularly vis-a-vis -vis China, 
even if we don't approach that challenge in identical ways. Uh, but we are going to have differences. We're going to have differences about what the ideal international economic order is or should be. Uh, we're going to have differences about uh, the future of the liberal international order in the political space. Uh, we're going to have differences about how we manage uh, the big issues of development and climate change. And so there will be differences even as our relationship you know, grows closer and our societies become uh, more and more intertwined. And so it's going to be a test of our maturity in some ways to see how we can work with this country uh, with whom we will have some important disagreements. And I suspect that what President Biden is trying to do is build the foundations for managing the entirety of these challenges, both the issues that bring us together, the issues that, that have the potential to set us apart. And I think he's trying to do that by nurturing a personal relationship with the prime minister, which I think is a very good thing. Uh, he's attempting to be responsive to India's own ambitions where they don't compete with our interests. And I think that is a good thing. And I suspect he will find his own, you know, inimitable way of also engaging India on some of the differences that, you know, stare us in the face. Does America need India more than India needs America? How do you weigh the trade-offs in that question? I think the answer to that is, is simple. Uh, you know, the United States is so much more powerful than India that our need for India will always be less than India's need for us. I mean, it's just simply built into the structural character of the relationship. Uh, India is a rising power, but whether you measure a comparative US and Indian strengths by GDP, by per capita income, by technological sophistication, by military capabilities, the gap between our two countries is so wide that I find it hard to imagine a situation where the United States would actually need India in a way that India needs uh, the United States for at least some years to come. I want to talk about values a little bit. How important do you see that issue um, in U.S. foreign policy, especially with regard to a relationship like the one with India? And I ask that question because I think democracy is crucial here. It's often cited as a reason for the closeness uh, that America has with countries such as India in the South Asian region and say, with Israel uh, in the Middle East. But as democracy declines in those places, as it has in the last decade, one could argue, does that change the basis of their friendship? I don't know if it changes the basis of the friendship, but it certainly intensifies the dilemmas. There was a time when India was seen in the United States when I was working in the Bush administration as nothing but an untrammeled opportunity. I think today, the sense of opportunity has not disappeared by any means, but the shadows cast 
by the changes that are taking place in India's politics are beginning uh, to affect our perception of India. Now, they haven't reached a point where they are forcing us to make hard choices. And hopefully we will never get to that point where we are forced to make hard choices about India because you know it's, it's democracy uh, deteriorates to, to such levels. But the point is you can already see on the horizons an uncertainty and a discomfort that US policymakers feel today about certain trends in Indian domestic politics that simply did not exist during the years of the Bush administration when I was working on issues relating to India. And if these trends in India persist and intensify, then I think the challenges for the bilateral relationship will also increase. I think thus far, the administration has walked a very fine line uh, trying to protect uh, the realist benefits of cooperation with India, particularly in the Indo-Pacific vis-a-vis China, while engaging in a very gentle and quiet conversation uh, about the challenges to liberal democracy. That conversation has been held mostly in private where it should be. And we have found ways of preventing that from overwhelming the other elements of cooperation, which are obviously valued. You know, but, but the fine line that you mentioned, Ashley, um, often uh, appears to um, other observers as hypocrisy, um, where the U.S. treats India in one way and, say, China in another. And I just want to bring in a couple of questions from uh, some of our subscribers that are linked to this issue. Uh, Manus Churchill points out, um, he cites a Department of State uh, uh, International Religious Freedom Report and points out that um, freedom for India's religious minorities is in a dire state. Muslim, Christian, and other faith communities regularly face severe attacks. Uh, attackers largely go free. He asks if you can speak to this issue and the impact that human rights should have on U.S.-India relations. And while you mull that, a related one from Lawrence Thomas who asks, will India's promotion of tourism to Kashmir lead to more or less human rights issues in that area? And how should America tackle that issue? So on the first question, I think there is no doubt that the situation facing minorities in India has become much more difficult today uh, than it was, say, 20 years ago. I think the approach that the administration has taken is that if we have an open conversation about these issues, we are unlikely to be able to persuade India uh, to adopt a different approach. And so I think the effort has been to talk to Indian leaders privately while continuing to call out what we see as egregious violations. And I think the best device for doing that are the various State Department reports uh, that appear on these issues. Uh, so we've been truthful in terms of our perception of what the realities on the ground are. Uh, but we have been much more subtle in our public discourse uh, with respect to how we approach these with India. And I don't see that broad uh, dichotomous strategy in effect uh, 
uh, changing anytime soon. With respect to the questions in Kashmir, I think much of it is going to depend on what the security situation in the state is. And if the security situation in the state improves, as I hope it does, then you know, tourism uh, in Kashmir will only have beneficial effects for the Kashmiris and for India. But if the security situation in the state uh, remains troublesome, uh, then I don't see how, uh, you know, the possibilities of tourism would materialize in the first place. And so I think that the key variable there is uh, the security situation in the state. And while things have certainly improved, uh, I'm not sure uh, that the, you know, the worst of these troubles are entirely behind us. Um, you know, we've been talking a lot about Taiwan um, and where that fits into the U.S.-India relationship. And sometimes I think here in the U.S., we tend to reflexively think of a conflict over Taiwan as something that's imminent, um, whereas the unresolved border crisis with India and China um, doesn't get talked about as much. Um, where do you see that crisis, the India-China um, tensions playing out in the next few years? And how does America see its involvement in that? So basically the inverse of the Taiwan question. So I think the Sino-Indian border crisis is going to remain persistent and frozen for a long time to come. Uh, I'm not quite sure what the Chinese calculation is, because if the Chinese wanted to resolve the border crisis, they could really do it in a heartbeat. Uh, the outlines for a solution to the border crisis were laid out on a couple of occasions, first by Zhu Enlai and later by Deng Xiaoping. And the essence of that solution was to accept the status quo with minor modifications, which is India preserves the territories that it controls in the eastern sector, the state of Arunachal Pradesh, uh, whereas China continues to control uh, the territory that it uh, occupies in the western sector, which is an Aksai chain. So it was in effect a swap arrangement, if one could think of it in those terms. It's a very sensible solution. And it's a solution that I thought both sides were working towards uh, in the last couple of decades through the various agreements that were reached with respect to managing the border. Now, Xi Jinping seems to have changed course in some fundamental ways. Uh, he does not, I do not see that he senses an urgency to resolve the border problem with India. And I think that is because there's a cold-blooded calculation that China is only going to grow stronger over the next decade or the next two decades, and that when time comes for a negotiated settlement, uh, China wants to be in the strongest possible position uh, to negotiate an outcome that will be almost entirely favorable to its own interests. Whether this judgment is true or not, I don't know, but they are certainly behaving as if it is. And so I don't expect the Chinese to make any efforts to resolve this border crisis, which means that we are going to be faced with a long-term standoff on the Sino-Indian border. What is the U.S. role in this? I think the U.S. has a very minimal role. The best we will do is we will continue to support India as long as India is seen as a victim of Chinese aggression. I think it's the right policy for us. 
uh, to support India in the face of Chinese pressure. But I do not see uh, the United States doing much beyond that. Now, of course, uh, we have already begun uh, to support India militarily in terms of building up its capabilities and so on and so forth, with the aim of enabling it to provide a sound defense. And I think that too is a sensible approach and that too will continue. So, but, but both those elements are passive. We are not going to be involved uh, much beyond that, uh, as far as I can see. You know, Ashley, much of this discussion has been about the nature of America's bet on India. Um, without using sort of the bad good framing, it's a very nuanced bet. And much of your argument and the things you've said in public have been about being realistic about the nature of this bet, the nature of India's rise, and what that means for America. I want to push you to just broaden this a little bit, because India, especially this year with its presidency of the G20, um, has sort of projected itself as a leader of the global South. So I think a lot of other countries, a lot of other developing states, they look to India as an example of what could be an, an example of, you know, a new form of non-alignment, an example of a new form of engagement uh, with the West or an old form of engagement in new clothing. Given everything you're saying about America's bet on India, what implications does that have for other large democracies? I'm thinking of Indonesia or Thailand or Nigeria or other countries with big populations that have similar trade-offs to make uh, as India does. What are the implications there? Well, I think the biggest implication is that we're going to live in a much more complicated political universe. And we are going to have to deal with countries that are large, that are capable, and that have ambitions that do not always perfectly align with ours. And we cannot subject our relations with these countries to any single point tests. Uh, we're going to have to learn to live with things that we find uncomfortable. And we will have to be very cautious about understanding what are the things that we prioritize most of all in our relationships with each of these countries. We are not going to get full satisfaction across the entire range of issues. And so in that sense, we have to be less ambitious because if we think a partnership with India, a partnership with Indonesia, a partnership with Nigeria is going to or should end up with full alignment on everything, then we are going to be deeply, deeply disappointed. And so with each of these countries, we need to simply rank order. What is it that matters most? And if we can build convergences on the issues that matter to both sides, most of all, then I think that is good enough. And that is a good enough foundation on which to sustain these partnerships. Ashley Tellis, thank you very much for your time today. Pleasure, Ravi. Thank you so much for having me. And that was Ashley Tellis, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Next week, Dan Wang. There is no one better to explain China's tech scene. Dan Wang writes incredibly thoughtful and smart essays reflecting on China every year. He will join me to make sense of competition with the United States, the AI race, chips, semiconductors, and much else. 
Remember, if you want to watch these in video live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers get to submit questions in advance. As you know, I sometimes use them to frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you soon.